This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Three months ago, um, we we stopped doing church. Uh, we literally withdrew from everything. We, I came off the staff WhatsApp group. Um, I came off Facebook, literally off Facebook. That's good, you know. <laughs> Getting off Facebook, um, not on Instagram. Didn't bother looking at Twitter. Uh, didn't turn up to Sunday services. Didn't talk to anyone. <laughs> we really decided to take a sabbatical. And um, it was really interesting. Um, we didn't uh, attend services for 13 consecutive Sundays, which frankly we've not done since 1991. Actually, I'll talk for myself. I've not done since 1991 because that was when I first started to go to church regularly when I was a student at university. Uh, that was my rebellion. Um, and um, frankly, I've been doing it ever since for 31 years. So to not do that for 13 consecutive weeks was really weird. So it was a major change to the rhythms of my life. Um, some of you will know that I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, Claire and I have our own practice, so we continue to run that part-time. Um, and uh, we did a deep dive into a bit of study. Claire did some deep dive into some theology study. I was reading some deep books. Um, and basically, uh, didn't do much else. It was great. We spent a lot of time with our kids, as they, particularly our boys, as they were doing their GCSEs and A-levels. And it was just such a different experience that it gave me a chance to gain a different perspective on my life. And um, uh, it gave me an opportunity to get some pithy perspectives as well as some deep perspectives. So, for example, um, I decided that I wanted to go on a long-distance ride by myself. So um, I got on the train, I went down to Penzance, and then I cycled back from Penzance to Bristol. And uh, stopped over with some friends and family along the way. Uh, it was only over four days. Um, but, oh my gosh, what an amazing perspective it gave me on that part of the world. Now, uh, I actually... Um, I know Devon and Cornwall really well, uh, partly because my mum's side of the family, they're all Cornish and, and Devonians. And um, I also went to university for four years in Plymouth. So I, I know that area really well. Um, but actually, I got to know it in a whole new way on a bicycle. Cycling 220 miles back to Bristol gave me a very different perspective on a place that was very familiar with me. Before I embarked on the ride, I... Um, I actually spoke to one of my friends, Charlie, and, his, and him and his wife had previously cycled from John O'Groats, which is the tip of Scotland, to Land's End, which is the tip of Cornwall, um, and so which is a much more impressive achievement than mine. But uh, when I told him what I was doing, he went, oh, Devon and Cornwall, he said, yes, hilly, hilly. <laughs> you see, in Scotland, the mountains are not very big. We've just been to the Alps on holiday, and, and the mountains in Scotland aren't very big. Well, in Scotland, when they build a road, they don't go over the top of the mountain. They go around the mountain because they're too big to build over the top of. So the roads in Scotland go around the mountains and keep a fairly straight level. But in Cornwall and Devon, there aren't any mountains. But what there are are deep ravines where the rivers have cut down through from Bodmin and Dartmoor and all those areas, and they cut down to the sea. Now, <laughs> as, of, as you can see from some of the photos, uh, Devon and Cornwall, here, the railways and the roads um, have, uh, engineers have built the railways and the roads and engineered out lots of the ups and downs that exist in Cornwall and Devon with these amazing bridges and wonderful viaducts. And if you've never done the train journey from uh, Bristol to Penzance, I really recommend it because it's just viaduct after viaduct after viaduct. It's so impressive to watch, but it's also quite scary to watch knowing you've got to cycle back that way. So um, uh, I, uh, what I realised 
when I planned my route was that I wanted to go on the B roads uh, because I thought it would keep me away from the traffic on the A roads. But what I didn't realise was that B roads in Cornwall and Devon are what we call farmers' roads that snake their way around the fields. And um, when they come to the, one of the literally hundreds of streams that, that have cut their way down into the rock um, across that landscape, um, they don't go over them with bridges, they literally go down them and then back up the other side. And you don't even have the joy when you're cycling of freewheeling down, you know, like an Enid Blyton style, you know, kind of like the hair rushing through, the air rushing through your hair and, you know, squeals of laughter and joy. It's not like that at all. You, like, you've basically got really high hedges, muddy roads, blind corners, and many, many industrial-sized tractors coming up the other way. So you literally, you have to go downhill wearing the brake pads out on your bicycle, going really slowly in case you hit a, a tractor coming the other way. And, and then when you get to the bottom, you've got a one in seven climb out of the valley. And it's so steep that with every stroke of the pedals, my front wheel would lift off the road. And I didn't have a heavy you know, pannier rack on the back or anything like that. Literally, the front wheel would just lift up with every pedal stroke. So when I think of Cornwall and Devon now, um, I feel Cornwall and Devon. Uh, I don't just see it in my mind's eye, I feel it in my muscles. And, um, uh, you know, as I said, there's no mountains in Cornwall and Devon. Somehow I managed to climb the equivalent of Ben Nevis, which is the tallest mountain in the UK, about 1,500 metres. I managed to climb that three times in that short journey from Penzance to about Exeter. No, not Exeter, Tiverton. Uh, so uh, two areas to avoid, guys, if you ever do this, at Bodmin to Plymouth and Morton Hampstead to Tiverton. Just, you know, get on the A roads or catch a train or something because it's just exhausting. So going on that cycle ride over four or five days just kind of gave me a whole new perspective on Devon and Cornwall. I saw it in a way that I'd never seen it before. And, you know, in many ways, stepping out of the rhythm of doing church and Sunday gatherings like this actually also gave me a perspective as well. I'll be honest with you, initially I didn't miss it. Look, 31 years of doing this every Sunday and then stopping doing it, it was like, whoa, this is nice. We went off on our bikes on a Sunday morning, cycling around the countryside where we live. We did that for about two weeks. Um, and then we would sit and read the papers or eat croissants and drink coffee. We'd lie in. It was summery. It was really nice. It was like, oh, it feels like we're on holiday. And um, as I said, initially, I didn't really miss the rhythm of doing church. I miss seeing people like you, but I didn't miss the rhythm of doing it. Um, you know, as I said, it's been... 31 years since September 1991, when I was 18. Um, it's, been, it's been 31 years since I ever really had a, consec uh, a run of Sundays off, and breaking that rhythm was really good for me. It was a really good shift of perspective. In those 31 years, I've listened to, in total, at least 1,500 talks on the Bible. And that's, um, that's not counting the days when we used to go to church twice on a Sunday. Um, uh, uh, that's more talks than I can remember and um, I, to, be, to be sure uh, listening to those talks week in week out they will have shaped my worldview you know both um, unconsciously and consciously because sometimes we sit and listen to a talk and we critically evaluate it and we absorb what we want to absorb other times we just absorb messages that we hear in this kind of context and, and not just this kind of context any context really we just absorb it and it shapes us as who we are and to be sure 31 years of doing church every sunday has shaped 
me and the person I am. And that was just a, it was just a, a really profound thought. Um, I've, uh, in those 31 years, I have sung a playlist of songs that have been repeated so many times, I barely need to look at the lyrics of the words on the screen because they just flow from one to the next. And let's be honest, they're quite similar, aren't they? If you think about it, the songs are about the same sort of thing. They're about love, they're about adoration, they're about glory, they're, about ref they're reflective, they are heart songs. And, um, and actually, not singing those songs for 13 weeks gave me pause to reflect and think about how well those lyrics helped me express something in my heart. Um, in those 31 years, um, I've shared the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper here, but we talk about it in terms of communion or Eucharist, which is where we break bread and drink wine together to remember the body and blood of Jesus. I've done that more times than I can remember, probably over 300 times. And not sharing that ritual for 13 weeks gave me pause for thought and reflection about the importance of that ritual to our community cohesion. Um, I'm going to share more perspectives and fresh perspectives that we've gained and I've gained and Claire's gained uh, over those 13 weeks. But uh, to, be sure, to be sure, it was a really profound change in our rhythm and has definitely given us lots of food for thought. And I'll be sharing more about this with you in the weeks and months to come. But today, I simply want to encourage us to consider our varying the rhythms of our lives in order to gain fresh perspective. And this will apply to some of us more than others. Um, and that will depend on how uh, ingrained some rhythms are in your life. And, but to illustrate the value of this, let's take a brief look at the life of Elijah as part of our series of talks, Encounters with God. And this has been going on whilst we've been away to, to, great, uh, to great acclaim, I hear. Um, so you can read about uh, Elijah um, in 1 Kings 17 through 19, or 2 Kings 1 and 2. But let me briefly summarise him to you. Elijah was a prophet, and um, since we don't really have contemporary equivalents um, of Elijah, and you might hear of people that call themselves prophets, but we haven't really got the sort of uh, contemporary equivalent uh, in religious terms. So let me just... Uh, describe Elijah as someone who speaks truth to power, someone who stands up to tyrants. Now, it's a tricky thing for me to suggest a modern equivalent to you because, um, depending on your political views, I'll probably upset one of you. <laughs> so I'll be careful what I say. Um, uh, but um, perhaps, perhaps think of Alex Navalny, who is allegedly in prison for opposing uh, President Putin in Russia. Think of perhaps Nelson Mandela, who opposed the South African political class who imposed apartheid and was in prison for 27 years. This is who I think of when I think of Elijah. I think of someone who stands up to uh, tyrants who speaks truth to power. Um, if, if you can't, agree, you know, kind of, if those two characters don't help you with that, think of your own examples. But Elijah was like them. He called out corruption and evil in the heart of the political leadership of Israel. And he showed huge courage in doing so. Um, he, he challenged political leaders who had the power to take away his life, to torture him and persecute him. So let's look at 1 Kings 17 verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite uh, from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, that's King Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So Elijah basically says to King Ahab, I'm going to call a drought down on you. And there's going to be a drought in this land. Um, 
and it will, it will only be relieved by my word. Okay, that's a very dangerous statement to say to a tyrant. Think of the worst tyrant in the world that you can, you can imagine. You may be thinking of Hitler. You might be thinking of Mao Zedong or King George III, depending on who you are. Choose your own tyrant. Just for a moment, think about that. Ahab was like that tyrant. Okay, so think of the, think of the worst person you can think of. Ahab was like that. And he had a wife called Jezebel who was just as bad. Now, on this occasion, it seems like a one-off occasion. I've just literally, I've just literally cut a verse out of the Bible for you and stuck it on the screen. Okay, it might feel like that's a one-off conversation. It's not. Uh, this is this will have been an ongoing conversation for a long time. He would have been a long-time critic of Ahab and Jezebel and would have been telling them how evil they were. He'd have been calling them out, um, and as a result, him and his team, because he wasn't alone they would have been considered enemies of the state. Anyone seen Enemies of the State, the movie? You know what I mean? You can't, yeah, yeah, one person. If you haven't, you need to watch it. Like, it's a great movie. Um, but it's about uh, exactly this, where someone becomes an enemy of the state and their life is made hell. Now, back then, politics and religion were all wrapped up together. And again, it's difficult to, uh, to kind of describe contemporary examples, but just to give you a kind of, a kind of direction travel in terms of what we were talking about here, think of the way the Taliban in Afghanistan wrap politics and religion together. Okay, If you're not familiar with that, that's what they do. They, they wrap religion and politics together. Uh, they exert power through religion and what we would also recognise as political um, techniques. So when Elijah claims to have divine power to create a drought, um, he's not spouting some lunatic fringe nonsense. Okay, If someone did that in Britain, um, we probably would just dismiss them and, and probably report them uh, for you know, some crime. The reality is, is that actually his, Elijah's uh, uh, promise to bring a drought on the land would have been taken as insurrection. It would have been considered a very serious claim um, and would have made him even more of an enemy of the state. Now this summer, of course, we've had a small taste of the hardship and suffering that drought can bring. Um, but my, I don't know about you, but my garden's looking green again already. Um, but the reality is, is that he was calling a drought down on, for three years. Three years this drought lasted. We've had a drought that's lasted probably, f well actually, I mean, I think the experts would say that we've had a drought through the spring and winter last year as well. But what we think of as a drought right now, the last two or three months, Elijah calls down a drought for three years. Um, I think he got him into a lot of trouble. <laughs> and no wonder Elijah decides to take a sabbatical from speaking truth to power. <laughs> it must have been exhausting. 1 Kings 17.2 Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastwards and hide in the Cherith ravine east of Jordan. So I just want to say Elijah, I've had a three-month sabbatical. Elijah had a three-year sabbatical. Back from the front line, um, changing his rhythm of his life. And, um, and the reality is, is that after three years of drought, the famine had created so much devastation, as it would, that Ahab and Jezebel are clinging to their, to their political power. They're clinging to it, and, and they are killing anyone that they can find that they can blame for this. And so when, uh, when Ahab discovers that Elijah has showed his head again, he wants to kill him, as does Jezebel. Um, but in spite of this risk, Elijah presents himself to Ahab and demonstrates his divine authority and promises that it will not rain again. Um, 
Now, Ahab's wife is not there at the time, and I think she's a bit of a psychopath, because despite the fact that Ahab seems to be in awe of Elijah's power, Jezebel's having none of it. And she promises as soon as she finds him, she's going to slaughter him. So she's quite a nasty piece of work. And Elijah, once again, is exhausted from being on the front line, being an enemy of the state, speaking truth to power, that he takes no sabbatical and runs away. Um, and, uh, and, and he removes himself from the front line in order to be restored and gain fresh perspective. Because actually, he realises that he hasn't got perspective. We see that in God's encounter with him. And you'll have to read about this yourself in 1 Kings 19. But what we see is Elijah removing himself from the front line and resting, restoring, and gaining fresh perspective, which, considering the courage that he needed to have in order to speak truth to power, um, is completely understandable. Now, thankfully, we don't have tyrants like Ahab and Jezebel to face up to. But we do have things in our lives that we do need to face up to, right? Or am I the only one who doesn't? So what is it in your life that you are facing up to at the moment? Uh, what challenges have you got? And they may be you know, fairly reasonable challenges, like it might be a new job, or it might be a, a, a round of exams, it might be a qualification you're working for, towards, or it might be something much harder than that. It might be something where you're fearing abuse, where you're trapped in an uh, abusive relationship, where you're struggling with um, relational issues. Maybe your mental health is under threat at the moment. Maybe your physical health is suffering. What is it you're facing? And where do you need fresh perspective? And how are you going to get that fresh perspective? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took time out to reflect to gain new perspective? What is it that you need to stop doing? What do you need to take sabbatical from in order to gain fresh perspective? Now, it might be that um, you need to take a holiday. Maybe you just need some time off. You've just been working flat out and you need a break. It may be that you need a sabbatical. Maybe you've been at it 31 years like we have and you're like, yeah, I need to take a sabbatical from that because it's a rhythm that I'm so used to that if I stop it, it's going to make a big change to my thinking and my life. Maybe you need to work with a spiritual director. Maybe you've never heard of that, but that's someone who might help guide you through a time of reflection and contemplation. And if you would like to do that, talk to Claire. She will connect you with someone. It may be that you'd like to do uh, some counselling. It may be that you want to work with a counsellor and you want to just invest six, some money in six sessions with a counsellor and just talk through some stuff that you've not really processed before. It may be that you don't want to do it with a counsellor but you'd rather join in with our Emotionally Focused programme where you get to really explore what, what's really driving you under the surface, to pause and reflect and, and ask yourself, what's my motivation? What, what's actually ha happening here? What's, what's channelling me in this direction. Um, so, so there may be a number of things. It may be that you, uh, it, it may be that actually, do you know what? It may be that you need to do what we did and stop attending a Sunday service. I mean, this might not be your church. You might, you, maybe you need to take some time out from church because you've been doing it for 31 years and you've never done that before. And you need to take a few weeks out just to go, I need some time out. Now, you've got my complete blessing to do that if you want to if that would be helpful. But whatever it is for you, that was what it was for us, but whatever it is for you that you need to take time out from, 
in order to reflect, to go deeper, and to be better connected to your inner self. Because that's what a sabbatical will give you, whatever that is from. Let me say this to you, your emotional and your spiritual health are our priority as an organisation. We are not in the business of just throwing religious events. We only do things together to contribute to the well-being of your and of mine emotional and spiritual health. 